the Road, the podcast series all about facing failure, overcoming difficulties, improving our research culture, and so much more, all set within the higher education and research environment. If you're joining us for the first time, then you're welcome to listen to these episodes in any order, or pick and choose the ones that interest you. But I do recommend listening to episode one, which is a short introduction to this project, first. That episode outlines what we're trying to do here, how the project came about, why we use the language we use throughout the episodes, and a few other technical bits, such as funding and ethics as well. Although this podcast was made as part of my work as training coordinator for graduate students at the University of East Anglia, I'm not a professional sound engineer or radio host, and all of my guests were volunteers, recording from their own homes with the equipment they had to hand. Please bear with us if the episodes aren't always quite as polished as professional podcasts. The message they convey is what's important here. Speaking of that, I hope you enjoy today's episode and it gives you something to think about, either now or in the future, it inspires you to try something different, or it makes you feel less like the only person in the world when you face setbacks or difficulties in your work. If you have any feedback or comments about this episode, I'd love to hear from you. Contact details are in the show notes. Show notes have been created for this and every episode. They contain links to as many of the books, people, websites, or other resources mentioned by our interviewee, combined with some of my thoughts and notes. Show notes for every episode can be found at emmaelvidge.com forward slash podcast. Stepping back from asking permission from the institution that you've already, that we're talking about in terms of this is an institution that puts barriers up that kind of puts restrictions in the way and I I kind of check myself and find myself thinking hang on am I looking for permission or kind of validation from the institution that I'm actually saying hang on a minute it kind of needs to change and then I can remind myself that I don't really need that sense of, of validation. That was Dr Fee Roxburgh a lecturer in philosophy at the University of East Anglia. In this episode Fee delivers honest reflections on her career and life in academia from the get-go. Having worked across politics, philosophy and mental health support, and they're just the areas we touched on, Fee has a wealth of ideas about addressing the topic of failure within the research and HE environment. In particular, they talk about their experimentation with radically redesigning the assessment of a module they teach to address the current fear of failure and stress, or lack of enjoyment with the learning and research process, that they were seeing in their students. Fee is evidence that we, as individuals, can make a real difference to our higher education culture within the systems that already exist, whether that's a radical module redesign or just asking someone if they want a cup of tea. Other topics we touch on include larger issues of equality within society, gender, caring roles and the burden of care, and feminism and failure. There's so much food for thought here. Enjoy. Hi, Fee. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Would you like to start off by introducing yourself? So who you are, what you do now and how you got to be there? Yeah. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm a lecturer in philosophy. So I work in the 
um, Department of Philosophy in the School of Politics, Philosophy and Language and Communication Studies at UEA. Um, I'm actually a part-time member of staff. Um, so uh, my job is, um, I'm ATS, so I'm a teaching staff rather than research. Um, and how I got here always feels like a little bit of a messy story. Um, I, When I did my PhD, I, for some reason, decided to do it full time and work full time at the same time. Um, so I didn't get a chance to sort of do publications whilst I was doing my, my PhD. Um, I had a teaching fellowship at UEA after that, but um, then after that, it was a bit of a struggle kind of um, financially catching up on debts, working lots of jobs, trying to keep my hand in with teaching. Um, so I found I wasn't getting the time to do the publications that would get me the research positions. So what happened, a very, very long story short, was I just sort of kept my hand in teaching, doing whatever associate teaching I could do at UEA. Um, and eventually, I've sort of been doing that consistently for a while um, and then sort of applied to have a permanent contract. So I got a temp uh, part-time permanent contract. Um in PPL um, and I absolutely I adore teaching um, and um, yeah there were rather sort of personal factors going on at the time but um, a lot of that process of coming from my PhD um, finding myself with initially a quite small fractional contract it's got a little bit bigger now um, and sort of struggling to get my foot in the door. I've spent a lot of time thinking about failure and whether it's me failing or what I could have done differently. And there are all sorts of factors in there. Um, and so I, I still find it, I do have students now saying like, oh, how did you get where you are now? You know, I'd really, you know, I see you as a role model. I'd love to sort of get where you are now. And I'm like, oh my goodness, please don't do it the way I did it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I, my role is primarily in teaching. I teach, um, undergraduate, uh, first year philosophers a lot. Um, I supervise a lot of undergraduate dissertations in philosophy, and I've also started doing work on politics modules in the area of, um, feminism and gender and that sort of crosses over with my interest in philosophy of feminism philosophy of gender um so i've been able to work with some master's students um from the gender studies ma which is has just been a, an amazing mm. experience um so yeah that's that's kind of a little bit of what i do <laughs> how nice to be called a role model by your students i love that you should treasure that Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I mean, I've, it's really difficult, isn't it, when you're in that situation, when you're um, piecing together bits of contracts and, and making things work. And at the time you can think that, well, perhaps you don't, I shouldn't put it on other people, but I've definitely have been, not even sure I'm out of that time of thinking that anything other than a nine to five, five days a week, full-time position in one place whatever your career is is like the success and anything else is a failure and then you look back and you realize that 
you you know you made it work right and you you pay to live and a lot of things and like so it's not it's a massive success like just surviving through an um economic and um social system at the minute that that's that's difficult for everyone so absolutely that's 100% been me as well just thinking I don't have a full-time academic research position I must be a failure which is of course nothing that I would ever impose on any other human um and if I look at you know the other sort of jobs that I've been able to do whilst I you know part of the time between now and when I submitted my thesis a lot of it was taken up with a family member being ill who I spent a lot of time supporting um one of my jobs alongside sort of little teaching bits and pieces was working in mental health support and I absolutely adored that job um it was really enriching to do and I got to work with some incredible students um and it's really easy for me to kind of uh sort of whitewash over all of that stuff and and downplay it or just dismiss it because it doesn't fit this as you say this picture of what we think we ought to be aiming for absolutely and I think it's be interested to hear what your views on this it came up with the in an interview I was doing this morning about how in the say modern society in the society we live in now there isn't the job for life it just doesn't exist right and in fact you know the career service at UEA I'm sure career services everywhere are teaching our graduates to be agile to be prepared to work in lots of fields to change both because that's the nature of the economy and the fast moving job market at the minute but I think it's also the fact of life that we're going to be working for a lot longer than previous generations and so people quite rightly will get bored in one job Mm. and that's the fact of it and I tell that to students and I'm I know that but I I do wonder if within academia itself I think that job for life thing is still lingering perhaps longer than in some other industries because once people get a lectureship they tend to stick around I wonder if that whole thing of having that sort of portfolio career is less common and mixing things together so we do miss things out sometimes of our of our informal CV when we talk about it whereas in fact often those things can bring different perspectives to the work we do now. Yeah, definitely. I think I think I agree, definitely. And um, I certainly find when I speak to academics who aren't in the humanities, there's, this might just be my perception or coincidence, it, it feels a lot more like there are those um, those kind of portfolio careers going on of, oh, well, I spent some time in this industry and then I thought I'd do this and then I'd research this and then I would became a lecturer in this and it's it just sounds it's so rich and it it brings so much um to whatever you do and I think yeah having that conception of oh it has to be this permanent job and I think I know since the time I started doing my PhD to now the ability to walk out of a PhD and and get even a year-long contract is so different it's so so different um but certainly when I was doing my PhD, there was this conception that, yeah, you might have a few year long um, fixed term contracts, but then you ought to find your your permanent job. Um, and I think that's happening less and less. But we've still, as you say, we've still got this conception of just this job for life thing. And I, I wonder if that's also um, that sort of 
made even worse in a sense by the fact that I think a lot of people have this worry about academic jobs disappearing. So if they um, if they do have one, I think there's a sense a lot of people I speak to of well, I don't want to give this one up in case I can't find something mm. as good. Um, and and I know some friends as well have have a sense of like. <sighs> academia is not the ideal environment for me it's it's not necessarily psychologically that healthy but I'm not trained to do anything else what else would I do sort of thing yes once you've put all that that time and effort in and I've definitely have felt this that like is it failing to go and do something else not even necessarily coming from other people although I think some people do sometimes put that pressure on students but just from the point of view if you've gone through all that training you know you, you've got to this point you need to use it and and but what is it you know use it in what sense I'm just be using it in the traditional method I'm sure doing jobs elsewhere are using that knowledge in other ways aren't they but it can be difficult to see that yeah and I know I was I was supporting a student once um who I, I won't say what they did or or you know who they were um I was supporting a student once who had very difficult mental health problems to work through and they started doing a degree in a particular vocational qualification and in their last year they'd come through so much and they battled so much um they made the decision that just they didn't want to go into that vocation anymore and that actually it was just going to be detrimental for them to finish their degree and I thought that was one of the most incredibly strong and wonderful decisions and I saw it as such a mark of success and accomplishment on their part even though they were struggling with all these feelings of am I going to be a failure I'm not going to have had a degree da, 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 all of that stuff but to be able to get to that point and say I value what I've done here and it's led me to that deci- this decision um and I know now that they don't regret it at all. I think they, they've realised actually that's the beginning of them being able to really look after themselves. Um, and I was always struck by how how much resilience that takes to kind of say, actually, no, I, I don't have to be told how and what to value about the way I've spent my time. It's so brave to be able to stand up and say, I'm going to move away from this when yes. when often we you know persevering is um is is applauded I mean sometimes quite rightly but 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 then being able to move away from things is a very brave thing to do yeah absolutely absolutely you um oh no before I ask that question actually you um did you know then when you started your PhD were you hoping to continue within somewhere within the research slash academic sphere or just work out that way Yes, I really was. Um, and I, I still love to kind of make time for research. Um, I, you know, I still do a lot of um, sort of my research in the sense of reading and yeah. writing short little bits for myself and studying. Um, I would like to sort of um, move into that. And I'm hopeful that I'll be able to find ways of doing that um but it's not um as I've sort of gone along seen what my friends do seen what happens with full-time jobs at first I was like I must get a a sort of full-time academic job and now I feel like um do I want one because 
there's so much stress and so much pressure. Um, and I feel that even as a part-time member of staff, um, I'm sort of in this place where I'm letting myself think maybe actually having a fairly decent size, but part-time contract is actually going to suit me better in some ways. Um, that might be something I change my mind on, but I'm kind of, I, th I hope I'm starting to step away from feeling like, oh, it's not full-time, therefore it's not successful. Mm. Because people do, and you don't have to um, comment, I'm not asking for a comment, but just to make the point that people do part-time work for a variety of reasons, right? It's um, for, um, for choice, purely for their own choice, because that's what suits their lifestyle, their hobbies, their mental health, because it's their choice to care for someone else, because it's not their choice to care for someone else, but they're going to do it anyway, because that's the work that's available, because this fits in with that, like, because they're an Olympic athlete, like, there's a million reasons for people to choose or not choose, but to be, to be part-time, and so to label it as anything other than an, a successful option um, isn't right, but, but I think you're right, is done, and so it's about shifts in how we perhaps how we treat people at work part-time yeah absolutely absolutely and um I think it's it's also because it I think for a lot of people um I found if you speak to them about how did you get where you are a lot of it kind of feels like accident at the time yeah um and if I kind of set out with the goal of I want to have a part-time academic career then I think my own attitude to it would be really really different and it's because it's sort of it hasn't gone the way that I thought it should go or the way I thought other people expected it to go that's where these kind of external pressures came in um but I had a kind of a really interesting moment with a uh sort of a senior colleague a couple of years ago I was speaking to her about sort of um what sort of pressures we experience being women or non-binary um I identify as non-binary but I'm cis passing so um you know people very easily kind of put me in the woman category and that's that, that's uh kind of okay um, but yeah, she was speaking to me about what sort of my experiences were and what, what the prevalence of these kind of difficulties are. And I was saying, well, I feel so guilty. I haven't published. And she said, hang on a minute, your, your contracts teaching staff, isn't it? And I said, yes. And she's like, so why do you feel guilty? You're doing your job. Like there's, there's nothing saying that you have to publish or you're not, you know, where's that guilt coming from? And it was such, no one had turned around and said that to me before. It was such kind of scales falling from my eyes thing of like, oh, oh, I'm not doing anything wrong. Why am I treating myself like I am? Yeah, and that came up in something you said earlier when you're like, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't put that pressure or you wouldn't have put that thought on anyone else in life, but we do it to ourselves don't we um yes yeah definitely coming back to that publication topic because you also mentioned you didn't um because you were working full-time and doing a phd full-time which which i just i don't even know how that's possible so <laughs> kudos to you 
but you know that there wasn't the time to publish and then you're on like these fixed bits of contracts and then there's no time there mm. but I think this is this is really pertinent um not necessarily with regards to publications but the time issue in terms of the topic of failure in that a lot of things these days so during a doing an undergraduate degree during doing a master's doing a PhD they're so time constrained that failure in some senses isn't an option like we the students are scared of doing it we're scared of doing it because we don't have the time to start again you know you need to get outputs immediately and it, it makes you mm. makes perhaps people not pick riskier topics because oh if I can't get a if I can't do this and get a paper out in six months then you know you're not going to get your next job or whatever and you did mention um, one of the things to talk about was helping students deal with this feel of failure with within university environment so I wondered if that would be a good place to lead on to that topic absolutely yeah yeah definitely I think um yeah you're so right there's that there's so much because I, I I don't know how I did the full-time work and full-time PhD either um but I think again there was so much sense of I've got to do this that I kind of justified it to myself as oh no but this is just what you've got to do to get in the industry and blah 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 and all this really unhealthy stuff I'm like no nowadays I would talk back to me then and say like no don't glorify it you're treating yourself really badly um and I suppose it's because I've you know maybe because I've had this experience that I've had um and I've you know struggled with doubting myself with doubting my position in academia and I've realized okay this is you know, in education in general, there's so much pressure and, and so much time constraint. I've been really conscious of noticing that in students. Um, and one of the modules I teach is quite an unusual module. It's in um, formal logic for first year philosophers. Um, so for a lot of them, it's very different to what they expected to be studying as a philosophy student in their first year. And a lot of them feel like, oh, my God, why are you making me learn maths? This is horrible. Um, and it's a subject where, you know, again, not like other philosophy modules, there are a lot of questions that you can conceive of as you either get them right or you get them wrong. Um and what I've loved teaching this this um, module is actually the process of confidence building that the students go through, of helping students to get from the beginning of going, I can't do this, to realising that they can and giving them that experience of like, okay, if you're having, if you're coming across something that feels insurmountable, Again, you know you've done this, you know that you never thought you'd be able to do a truth table or a proof, but you did it. So that feeling of, I can't do it, it's, it's a feeling that could very easily be proved wrong. Um, and so for me, a lot of the, the joy I get from teaching um, has been in encouraging students to see it as um, a kind of learning curve, somewhere where they can build their confidence. Um, it's also been an arena where I've seen how petrified students are of failure. Um, and I know I've talked a lot with my other colleagues, with my student advisees, um, about how students arrive at university and it's as though they're, they're kind of already almost traumatised by the education system. They're so terrified of failure. 
And I remember saying to one student, as I say to a lot of students, look, look, if you already knew this stuff, if you could already do it, you wouldn't need to be doing the module, would you? And they turned around and said, well, no, I know that makes sense, but I'm so used to the expectation that I can already do it, that I have to already be good at whatever subject I'm taking because that's how it worked at my school, Um, which is just horrific to me. and I know a lot of students, you know, I know with one student, um, I was running um, a sort of very small class test for this this module. Um, it was one of several, so it didn't contribute that much to the overall mark. But I noticed one student was actually just sitting, not writing anything and crying. And I was like, this is awful. This is just, this should never be anyone's experience at university. Um, you know, whatever you're learning, however important or unimportant or contributing to your degree it is, there shouldn't be anything that where you feel so bad that you're ending up sitting and crying. And again, it's it's a first year module; it doesn't even count to their degree. So, you know, we we ended up having a chat, and you know, I very much kind of said, like, look, this you getting 100% in this is not my agenda. What do you want to get out of the module? Let's work to what you want, that kind of thing. So all of these experiences and all these things that I'd seen in students just feeling absolutely broken by the time they start studying um, and so petrified of failure and so so kind of uh, frozen in their tracks by that fear that I kind of started thinking about, well, what, how can I build into the assessment something that um, maybe addresses that in some way? So with the kind of rejigging and pla- replanning with the pandemic, um, uh, I had to sort of rejig the module quite drastically anyway. And so I thought, right, okay, this is the perfect time to put in you know they've said think of it alternative forms of assessment brilliant i'm going to go for it um so what i found with teaching this module is it's effectively it's learning a language so um they're learning a formal language and they're learning how to apply it and a lot of the the technical techniques that they're learning they're going to be ones that they don't get first time and it's kind of it's practice rather than reading about it and writing about it Um, and I found when I was learning um, these technical languages trial and error was essential so it kind of became essential to me to let myself mess it up and go back to it and I'd learn how the proofs worked and and what ways the proofs could go by giving it a try and getting it wrong um, and I kind of conceptualized it as like I'm kind of wandering around in these hills and fields and stuff, and I'm trying out different pathways, and one leads to a dead end, so I'll try another one. So often I'm I'm trying to get students to kind of almost embrace the idea of getting it wrong, which they absolutely hate. Yeah. Um, so what I did was I I said right, part of the uh, their assessment is going to be. Um, they're going to have these sort of very short worksheets to complete and I'll give them feedback and they can use that feedback either to improve on their work or just to kind of get a sense of where they're at 
um, decide whether they're happy with what they've done, um, and then submit these worksheets as their summative portfolio along with a reflective report. So the reflective report um, was, I, I didn't know how well it would work, um, but I said, look, initially it's a commentary on how you've decided to use the feedback. Um, that might be that you've used it to get a better mark. It might be that you were surprised by how well you did and actually um, it gave you the confidence to think, well, you know what, I'm going to pick my battles. I'm actually really struggling with this other module, so I'd like to put a bit more time and energy into that one. Um, I got this mark for this this worksheet. I'm really happy with that. That's solid. Um, and I just want to hear, like, what was your thought process on responding to the feedback? And what I said to them was, what I'm really looking for for the for the the top marks are for you to reflect more broadly on how you can use this module and this experience to increase your academic confidence and your academic autonomy. Um, and you can view that in as broad a way as you want. So what I'm looking for is how have you reflected on you taking back your degree, you owning it and deciding, right, I get to decide what it is that I value about my degree rather than feeling that I have to value it for some particular reason I've been told. I can decide what success means for my degree. I don't have to buy into what I've previously been told about getting a particular level of marks. Um, and I gave them some themes that they could talk about. Um, I said you could talk about perfectionism, you could talk about perhaps um, pat particular political identity categories where you feel that that's had an impact on your ed education, you could talk about fear of failure. Um, almost all of them talked about failure. Um, and it, I was actually really, really moved because so many of them did just really take the opportunity to write very, very honestly um, and openly about their experience. And a lot of them sort of wrote about the fact that being really, really encouraged to have a space where it was okay to get it wrong made a lot of difference. Um, some students kind of wrote about it coming from um, the position of like, I know a couple of them mentioned having ADHD and how that had played into um, their fear of getting things wrong, but how they'd sort of worked around it. Um, but it was, even though I've seen time and time again, students getting so het up about this module and really worried that they're, they're not going to get the mark they want for it. Um, it was actually quite, the, the, the staff member who moderated um, the marking in the portfolios sort of said it was really, really lovely to read the reflective reports, but also extremely disturbing to have in writing just how terrified they all are. Um, and I think a lot of them did write about, you know, the feeling of being able to have the freedom to say, I can give myself permission to decide what's successful. 
And I can say to myself, actually, yeah, you know what? I didn't get all of the formative work in on time. Um, and yes, I faced these hurdles, but actually, you know what? I've survived the module and that's more than I thought I was going to do. Or um, at the beginning of the module, I really thought I've got all these hang-ups about not being good at maths. So I really thought I had to get 100% on everything. But actually, I got this mark and this mark and it really boosted my confidence. So I've deliberately decided that actually I'm not going to make those changes to get extra marks because I want to let myself feel proud of that achievement. And I was sitting there reading this stuff. I was just absolutely over the moon hearing them being able to say this. And maybe some of them were writing this, uh, perhaps thinking, oh, this is what Fee wants me to say. But even if that's what they did, I hope that a little part of them started to believe it as they wrote it, if you know what I mean. Yes, and those ideas still had to come from somewhere, didn't they? Yeah. So, so even if they were making it up, like they, they've obviously taken a common feeling from classmates or cohorts or even things they've read as a common feeling within the university environment you know even on the internet or commentary because you haven't just come up with an idea for how to feel out of the blue exactly yeah yeah oh I love that I love well I love the positivity in that I was just a few weeks ago I was having tea with a colleague uh, I mean it was it was actual it was actual tea in their garden um oh, lovely. <laughs> not even virtual tea and it, it came we were talking about this a, assessment and how they'd sort of taken a non-standard topic and obviously it not obviously a non-standard topic had been taken and been made to fit within the standard assessment university systems because that module and that degree are within the university system and and there rightly so has to be some form of standardization and then UEA falls within a higher education system within the UK and globally for which there is some form of standardization I mean it was it it was nonsense, the idea that this thing could be assessed in the standard way. And it was almost a, I was trying to be like, okay, how could we change it? I just mentioned this as like an offhand comment and they were like, but it can't be changed. I mean, you know, you know, that's silly. It's within the system. And then yeah. the days afterwards, I was thinking, but is that always the case? And so what you've just offered me there is know that, that even within a system of formative and summative assessments, there are ways to do things differently if we're just brave enough to try yeah and it did feel very weird saying to them the way to get high marks on this piece of writing is effectively almost to reject the idea of high marks um and I you know for some of them I know from some people especially coming from backgrounds where they maybe are at high risk for imposter syndrome so for instance working class students um BAME students maybe um they might feel like, look, I've only just got my foot in the door. Please don't then tell me I have to drop this idea of striving for success. Um, so and it's not something I wanted them all to have to write about. But some of them did sort of say, I found that the way for me to get the most out of the module, to just enjoy learning the subject, which I really enjoyed, was to stop making the marks my goal. Um, so it felt very strange to say to them, like, right, if you want to get good marks on this piece of writing, you've got to kind of, one way of doing it is to, like, reject the idea of getting good marks. So it, it almost felt, like, contradictory in a way in some sense. But I loved the fact that what I could do is incorporate a sense of assessing them formally, 
not just in what they'd actually done, but in the effort they'd gone through um, to do it, the decisions they'd made, and to you know to award them for genuinely reflecting on their own learning experience and to reflect on why it's important to them. Um, and I really love being able to kind of make part of their assessment an encouragement for them to make that time for themselves yeah. and maybe take back their degree a little bit and decide for themselves what was important. I think it's come up in quite a few of these interviews, the the importance of interviews, uh, conversations, the the importance of reflection and you mentioned at the start of this of this topic about encouraging that almost I guess it's a growth mindset thing that thing of like you think you can't do this well two weeks ago you thought you couldn't do x and then you learned to do x and about you know monitoring progress over time and what I was going to ask you was methods for encouraging that amongst not just amongst students but amongst people in general and and I think reflection is one of those is this something you do yourself do you have other methods that you use to sort of to monitor your progress and say when things are difficult you can look back at how far you've come yeah I mean I think just it 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 can sound really cheesy and I was worried the students would think the whole exercise was a bit cheesy but really explicit reflection and kind of um actually saying it out loud in conversations and you know, if I'm asking, if I'm talking to other people and encouraging them and saying, would you ever apply these standards to somebody else? How how would you respond to your situation if you heard it coming out of somebody else's mouth? And that's that's definitely kind of something I kind of do with myself um, increasingly and in saying, like, actually, no, you'd never you'd never characterize this experience in the way you're doing if you heard it from another human being and I think encouraging kind of encouraging confidence and encouraging valuing of achievement which goes beyond just the quantitative markers of success that we're used to is something that I constantly try to encourage my students of any level to do because I think that's we're so kind of in academia now we're so kind of zoned in as you say we've got all of these structures and systems and it's all about um quantifiable measures of success and we can so easily lose all of the other values of education and research if we just get zoned in on those um in terms of what methods i think just having conversations and I think um you know as I mentioned uh, I did some work in in mental health so I always have ongoing interests in um mental well-being in um sort of looking after mental health that kind of thing so I'm constantly reading in that area as well um and I think just sort of really making time as cheesy as it might sound to choose for yourself what you are going to honor as an achievement or a success or uh, a positive in your life and then you know making a record of it so even things like 
daily achievement diaries. I've got some students to say, like, you know, if you're struggling with your mental health and your achievement that day is you got out of bed and you made your own cup of tea, own it. That's an achievement. Given the the hand of cards that you've been given that day, that's a really good achievement. And so I think being willing to adjust the yardsticks that we're using and just have conversations about the actual experience of it and not just thinking that we have to kind of shove our feelings down and get on with it and soldier through because the industry's really hard. So, yeah, I suppose it's quite a... It's maybe a bit of a vague answer to your question, but, yeah, I think just having really explicit conversations and it's something I do with my dissertation students is just saying to them how are you feeling about writing are you experiencing anxiety are you finding that you're getting het up with perfectionism are there things that are blocking you from writing and let's like let's have a look at what they are it doesn't have to be a big kind of therapy session but just sort of saying you know what it's actually really common to feel anxious that you're not writing something that's good enough Hmm. you know and just saying to them I feel that I feel that every time I write um it doesn't it doesn't mean that you're writing a bad thing and it's okay to say that you feel anxious and just kind of making space for them to talk about the experience of the writing and in doing that giving them a little bit of confidence to work past it yeah the honest the honest conversations and what we can do when we move into positions of responsibility yeah responsibility as individuals progress through their career I think it becomes in some ways even more important to be honest about it's still difficult for us it doesn't go away you just learn mm. how to you learn how to work despite that it's, it's it's and not all right like I feel that my writing isn't very good and still I'm trying to do some writing not I feel my writing's not very good so therefore I'm, I'm stop yes yeah absolutely yeah um and I think a, a lot of it is really like okay well Fee what ideally what would you have really benefited from hearing during your undergrad degree and like I was I was I know a lot of academics or at least there's this perception that academics who um, they've got lectureships, they teach and blah, blah, blah. There's this kind of almost myth that we were the ideal undergraduates. I was a nightmare. I did everything at the last minute. I still got silly marks, so that didn't go down well with my friends. Um, but I was so kind of, my time management was awful. Um, I was, you know, so kind of petrified by the idea of not doing well. And um, which which gives me an awful lot of like compassion for students who do procrastinate. But a lot of the time I sort of think like, oh, if I could just go back and tell myself X, Y, Z. So I use that as a kind of model of, say, like one, letting students know, like, look, I wasn't this kind of robot who did their degree by spending six hours in the library every day. I was a mess. I did it in a mess. Um and academics are humans and we're messy too. Um, yeah, sorry, I think I'm rambling off point a little bit. But um, yeah, just kind of giving students permission to feel these things, to feel insecurities, 
sometimes it's a case of giving them space to talk about where do these insecurities come from? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what is it within society that, you know, and I tend to sort of think like, look, society is set up to give certain, to give privilege and opportunity to certain groups of people. And that means that they have the capacity to move forward a lot easier. It's not that they don't deserve those things, but it's just that by pure coincidence, their circumstances are such that mm-hmm. they're on they're on track in society to get the things they need when other people aren't, and the difference is completely arbitrary. Um, you know, what gender you're born into, whether you're born into an able body or a disabled body of, of some sort, um, what your racial identity is, what class you're born into, all of these things. Um, and a lot of the time, I think, you know, students that I've spoken to have actually just felt really excited by saying like, oh, actually, yeah, okay, so... I can sort of I can sort of acknowledge that like society isn't necessarily set up in this fair way and we are kind of geared to constantly paper over that and think, oh yeah, it's it's all fair and if you just work hard enough you'll get the nice success stuff. And and also just to say like you know, I've said to students a lot, look, we're really, really, really used to quantifiable measures of success. You know, the whole of commerce is geared around that you know uh what how much money do you earn and how much stuff do you get to buy and all of that kind of thing um and i've found that a lot of the time students just get really passionate about having those sorts of conversations and taking back a little bit of a feeling of oh there are other ways that i can find value in what i'm doing which sounds like such a simple idea but it's so easy to forget i think it is. I wonder if we can also talk about this in relation to PhD students, researchers, academic staff, because when you when you talk about that now and when you mentioned it in your pre-discussion email chat, it is true there's this a culture of success, of productivity that like is the sort of, you know, work hard and and you can achieve, but everyone has so it's very easy to compare yourself to other people and to compare your outputs along a standardized model so within academia that might be the the ref you know your publication Mm. outputs it might be Mm. your teaching scores if you're on teaching track and so it's really easy to see a success failure binary to to life definitely yeah and I think one thing I've been thinking about quite a lot this year and I think I might have mentioned um in some of our emails is um this illusion that comes up in humanities especially i think that success is individual and it's a very individualistic model but actually nobody nobody writes loads of papers and books and gets loads of accolades in isolation they they do so because they're part of a community that supports them and that support that you get from your academic community is going to be greater or lesser, depending in part on some of these factors, you know, like um, these these factors of privilege or lack of privilege. Um, and I think the 
the people who are sort of appear to be very independently successful are ones who in one way or another are are able to benefit from the system that's set up who get this um benefit from the community around them so that it looks kind of effortless and individualistic it's just that they're the type of person that the system is set up to support if you see what I mean and I think really making that explicit and saying okay your experience of being able to sit in your office without without caring responsibilities without imposter syndrome for instance without anxieties that you've built up from just microaggressions within um, the institution um that's yeah it's great that you have that it's just that not everybody does that's not everybody's um experience and actually i think having one thing i really wish is that humanities could have a greater sense of um acknowledgement of the collectivity of the process of of saying this is kind of about collectively developing a community and caring for each other and having a caring attitude towards each other um and i think in certainly speaking to my friends and colleagues i think a lot of the time that's not what people's experience is um But I think, yeah, just acknowledging the kind of collective atmosphere of what happens when people do hit these markers that are seen as successful um, is is just as important as, you know, being able to value the other things we do along the way. Oh, absolutely. And I I think this will speak to people far beyond the humanities, because I I recognise this from my background in in the physical sciences. And I think just you having voiced it and just having this sort of conversation where you where you say, I recognise this to be the case and, and it being out there. I mean, that's help enough probably for a lot of people. We don't have this. This podcast is not about answers, much as <laughs> I come from a background of, you know, analytical, like I need to find an answer. I'm trying to be at peace with these effort. These discussions are just about conversations and once you put ideas out in the world people it will trigger things for people but I wonder if we or if you have any thoughts on I guess there are two there are two things at play here there's first of all how to personally deal with deal with keeping your eyes on your own exam paper you know as it were or keeping your eyes on your own monitors of success and and being a collective helpful team player when when these things aren't always monitored and then there's also what we could do so there's personal things that you do to to address this issue but there's also is there anything we can do as a academic society to um to address this to make the contributions the collective community contributions valued because they're invisible some of the time they're not invisible to the people that are being helped but overall they become less invisible in terms of promotion um and that the traditional markers of success yeah i mean i think i'm not i'm not really sure the odds to this i mean i my personal approach is i just keep making a big noise about it um and i think there have been quite a few times when i've thought oh i feel like I feel like doing X, Y, Z might be really helpful. Oh, should I do that? And I've just sort of 
and rather than kind of worrying too much about am I allowed to do this I've just thought okay I'll go ahead and do this. so for instance just running a well-being workshop for students and within doing that sometimes I get my own boundaries right sometimes I get them very very wrong and I do overextend myself and I'm not endorsing the idea that we should work beyond our means um but just sort of I think for me it comes down to looking at myself and saying am I being kind to myself and then looking around at the people around me be they academics or um you know administrative support staff student services staff students themselves and asking does it look like they're being kind to them themselves and can I offer anything and offering doesn't have to be like a big therapy session just it can just be a conversation or an, a question or um just sort of checking out if that person's okay if they would like to get a quick coffee um and just kind of applying that is that individual being kind to themselves question to oneself and to people around you like one in isolation isn't gonna work um at the expense of the other taking those two questions alongside each other um I think for me that's been the starting point in making more explicit the need for integrating well-being, integrating kind of collective care. Um, it's not a very solid answer at all, but it's it's kind of my starting point and it's it's where I've been able to have some really amazing conversations with people. Oh, thank you. That is great. I love the idea of of taking the two things together of not isolating them out and I think that is true but it's easy to forget isn't it that if we're not it's pointless to like forget ourselves in a quest to improve something or to help others or that sort of thing because in the end exactly it's just damaging long term yeah and there is an incredible kind of inequality in where kind of emotional labor and um kind of effort of care kind of happens in academia um I, I bumped into somebody who's now working in social sciences um, and she said the department of a majority of women and they all kind of, they naturally kind of watch each other and say, you're working a bit late, are you looking after yourself? Don't work too late, give yourself some new time. And she said that the culture is completely different. Um, and I know there is, you know, it, very often care responsibilities do fall to um, women or non-binary folk, um, meaning that they can often be actually really overburdened and overworked. And I'm not remotely suggesting that we should kind of play on that or exploit it either, because a lot of people are already feeling burned out as it is. Um, but, um, yeah, just to kind of... Um, make it sounds silly but making sure you're caring for yourself first and I think a, a lot of people are in that situation where they're over caring for everybody else and they just need to give themselves some care time and I know a lot of my friends in academia and in positions where that's still extremely hard if they're in a full-time job and they've got caring responsibilities mm. it's not ideal at all um 
and I think it's again it comes back to kind of just sort of everybody occasionally asking themselves um you know do I have an extra five minutes having been kind to myself can I you know offer that to a colleague as well I've been thinking it's very timely actually you're mentioning about the um but the burden of of labor it's been something that's been on my mind the past two weeks gearing up to organize some induction events for September and other events where or or just in general things um, in life where you have to ask things of other people and Mm. it becomes this often it's the same people you probably see in your department the same people that get asked that's because (laughs) they're either that's because they're either great at it um, or because they have a special characteristic that you want to include you know for example they are a working mum or they're they have some other caring responsibilities or their BAME or something along those lines. And then you do risk the the increasing people that perhaps have already faced barriers to the position they're in, as we talked about earlier, getting burdened with more things that are again on this on this scale of non not that aren't marked along the traditional yeah. of success. And so I was thinking, okay, so normally often if you need help, you'll ask people, okay, could you speak at this? So I was like, right, what can I do instead? Okay, I could just put out calls for um for volunteers. But then people don't other people don't volunteer themselves. Mm. And that's somewhat so this came up this morning actually someone was asking me how I found podcast guests. And I was like, well what I'm trying to do is instead of just putting out a blank call because great people won't always volunteer themselves because they don't think of themselves as traditionally as, as great is like asking people to recommend people but then um often people just don't have the time oh I don't have the time you know they see something oh I've not yeah. been asked to do something I'll just let it go so yeah have you got I did, <laughs> no answers or anything just I thought I'd bring that up as it had been on my mind um, very much so I think I definitely definitely resonate with this and it's an ongoing um, conversation I'm constantly having with colleagues of like the people who are really good at certain jobs and especially those kind of the more pastoral or um, care oriented jobs um, it, it's uh, one of as one of my colleagues says it's it's the usual suspects um, yeah. it's it's the same crew and it is that thing of like how do we how do we even this burden but also it's not necessarily that the other people are going to be particularly good at these jobs but how do we go about evening out i i don't have a clue i think all I can say is, is that it's my intention to keep making quite a lot of noise about it. Um, and that I, you know, I think these conversations and these podcasts are just really important just to have the conversations and to make them visible and um, to let people know that the conversations are going on. Um, and that that these things matter and that they matter to us as academics. Um, Even just in kind of, to take these podcasts as an example, hearing that you're interested in examining failure was so exciting to me, was such a breath of fresh air. Um, So I think just being able to make these things visible helps a lot and it lifts people up a lot. Um, And it's maybe not a kind of, 
an institutionalized solution but i think it's i think it's a really exciting start certainly i agree that um any chance to to have discussions and to make noise as you said is is a chance to open a door and it reminded me before i i think come back to what might start wrapping this up is that when you first started talking about that new piece of assessment and I just thought this is really brave you were talking about encouraging students to step away from this success failure the standardized model to to sort of to be brave to try new things and I thought no actually what you're doing is brave because this is a non-standard assessment your colleagues push up against people who've been doing the things a certain way for 40 years that um, things outside their comfort zone perhaps they push back on a little bit so I just wondered how you you sound like someone that is willing to make a noise to try different things to think outside the box and that approach can be super positive and you can meet people that feel the same as you and build your own tribe but it can also take courage you can put yourself out there when people might think you're odd and a bit weird so how would you describe this to other people how would you share how you've developed this mindset or or what works and what's difficult for you within that um I think actually as you said other people might think you're a bit odd and a bit weird I sort of thought actually I think most people kind of my general comfort zone is odd and a bit weird (laughs) I struggled Um, for a moment because I was like I'm I don't want you to think that I'm thinking this I completely personally self-identify as weird so I'm happy using that terminology yeah yeah absolutely absolutely and yeah there was definitely that feeling because I for this module for instance I don't um I don't have a set reading list. I just have suggested readings. So I've got my suggested readings that students can use if they really want to. Here are some logic textbooks they can go to, but I would prefer that they practised exercises. And I also put up some materials that I thought might broadly give them some inspiration for the reflective report because it's new and I thought they'd have questions. Um, So one of the inspirational texts that I put up was um, Bell Hooks Teaching to Transgress. And in the pit of my stomach, I kind of felt a little bit sick because I was like, oh, there are going to be so many people who were like, Fee, you put Bell Hooks on a logic reading list? Um, I was, you know, I loved that I kind of... (laughs) got that in there but I just sort of thought god there are going to be so many people who don't like this um but I think I I was really lucky I've had a really really supportive um department heads um who's loved the idea but even though there I was quite happy to kind of you know if people didn't like it uh, have those conversations um and I think yeah I think just stepping back from asking permission from the institution that you've already that we're talking about in terms of this is an institution that puts barriers up that kind of puts restrictions in the way and I I kind of check myself and find myself thinking hang on am I looking for permission or kind of validation from the institution that I'm actually saying hang on a minute it kind of needs to change and then I can remind myself that I don't really need that sense of, of validation. There's sort of there's being allowed to do things within the system, but aside from that, getting, you know, it's it's my module, I can make this choice. And I've been very lucky in that people have been broadly kind of positive about it. But it 
Um, I was also really willing for it to go completely wrong and get a, a ton of um, reflective reports in where I kind of had to think, oh, I did not explain this well, did I? And kind of, you know, work it, rework it for the next year, that kind of thing. So, so I think, sorry. No, finish up. So I think seeing it as a, a process, like as a starting point rather than, aha, I've introduced this new assessment and I've got it right the first time. I had to keep stepping back from aiming to get it right the first time. And I did lots of worrying about, have I explained it right? Should I be doing more kind of practice materials with them? Should I be doing it? Like, the, the goal is not to get it right the first time. That's the, literally the point of this report. Stop, stop falling into the trap of what this report is supposed to be addressing in the first place. I think that um, it's just what I was about to, uh, when I rudely interrupted you to, um, to to bring up was this idea of uh, what I've said in other interviews is how, so to people, how have you depersonalized yourself? You know, if things go wrong, how do you remove your yourself from the situation so you can view it impartially and and that's not quite right I've realized now just talking to you I don't necessarily mean to completely remove yourself from the situation because most people have honestly responded to me okay it might sound like I'm you know have depersonalized it but it's not it's very personal the moment I get the feedback I cry I yell I get angry but what I've got is the coping mechanisms to move on and I think what it sounds like to me you've just described the coping mechanism of of not seeing it as permanent or perfect and it's not just it's about the impermanence and the imperfection isn't it that it's you don't you don't start something you don't have to do it that way exactly forever and have it right first time you can iterate you can go back to what you were doing before exactly yeah exactly and I think just kind of looking at the skills I've managed to gain as a teacher I know I, I couldn't gain them from one year of teaching um they wouldn't be the skills that I have otherwise. Um, and just sort of letting it be a process and saying like, right, even if this works okay the first year, it, it's going to get really good by it being something that you keep growing and developing. It's a yeah. process. Like you say, it's it's not about perfection and permanence. It's, it's about it being an evolving thing, definitely. Before we start to wrap up, because I've, just caught a glimpse of the time and I could have sworn we'd only been talking for about 20 minutes and it's been about an hour <laughs> it's just been so fascinating um I and feel free to say no because we didn't discuss this in advance but I would be remiss if I didn't at least ask you to touch on feminism and failure because you mentioned that you taught on on modules regarding this so I, I consider you to be somewhat of an expert and we haven't in all the 15 episodes I've recorded so far I'm not sure although it's it's been brought up by a f you know a few people oh I wonder if there's a gender issue here I wonder if there's um if there's a you know so, um something around feminism here but I've never delved into it with anyone so I just wondered if you had any thoughts about yeah about the intersection between this topic of failure and feminism Absolutely, absolutely. I think um, it's a it's an incredibly gendered thing, and I, I would say even I would come at it from an intersectional point of view. So, if if there are listeners who aren't sure what intersectional feminism is, um, I would strongly encourage you first of all to Google Kimberly Crenshaw, fantastic scholar. Um, but it's about the 
different overlaps of varying um, fields in which um, inequality and oppression take place. So, so the way in which, for example, race and gender overlap such that um, it's not just that you get this add up of inequalities, there's something unique about the way they intersect there. Um, the same with gender and class, race and class, disability and gender. And I think absolutely the the issue of failure, the issue of how we judge ourselves is absolutely a feminist issue. And depending on which areas we have which areas we have privilege, which areas we don't have privilege, there are gonna be um ways in which we're experiencing um systemic and institutional pressures that um have a massive influence on how we view our own failure, how we maybe internalize it, how we cope with it. Um this is probably something I could talk for a whole other podcast about but yeah I I definitely agree um there's tons in here um that that links to feminism and I'd be more than happy to talk about that at great length um but I'm aware we're running out of time I will um I'm going to make some little show notes for each episode so I will put links to the the scholars and resources you've already mentioned and perhaps when I send that to you for proofing you could just if there's any if there's a just be feel free to add in um perhaps a couple of great starting points for for people and you never know maybe we can have another whole chat on the topic if it turns into something absolutely yeah I'd love that but just what you've shared there is enough for now because yeah it does just um as we said earlier by broaching the topic we're validating it we're saying to people you're not alone in thinking this issue might you know might be gendered or or might be linked to any other characteristic um that the you know this is true absolutely absolutely yeah and i've I've already got a couple of books in mind that i can recommend to people (laughs) perfect perfect i will um maybe add them no i'm i need to stop adding things to my to read list because it's you know it's the rest of my life long as it is already (laughs) definitely (laughs) yeah I know the feeling it's like an academic approach it's like with anything in life like get a dog okay I need to read 10 books on this topic have a child okay I need to read at least 50 books on this topic and um oh yeah yeah 100% that's yeah me all over (laughs) could you just give me a reading list for life please and then I can look absolutely um do you have anything else you want to share before we start to wrap up just to say thank you so much i've really really enjoyed this conversation it's been a wonderful opportunity um thank you so much for the invitation and um i'm really excited to listen to some of your other podcasts and um yeah just keep on watching the project as it emerges because i think it's fantastic and thank you so much for doing this work Thank you. I have really enjoyed having this conversation with you, which has been so positive and uplifting um, and all the other conversations I've been having as well. But thank you for your time today. Thank you very much.
today's episode. But remember, you can find lots more links and resources over in the show notes at emmaelvidge.com forward slash podcast.